Luke repeatedly shows, as we have gone now, I think it's coming up somewhere, I think we noticed a couple of weeks ago, near a year and a half now, uh, just passed in Luke's gospel thus far. And we've made it all the way to chapter 17 at this point. Um, and, of course, I don't have time this morning to like review the entire book, of which you'd all sigh and gasp if I attempted this morning. I won't. Don't worry. But by brief review, you recall... We have seen scene after scene, episode after episode, where Luke emphasizes the here and now. That is, he does emphasize the physical life, this aspect of human well-being. And he also emphasizes the future or eternity in his gospel. He emphasizes them in such a way that as we'll see yet again this morning in this text, that both the immediate moment and life eternal are interrelated. There is not an attitude, in other words, here in Luke's gospel, in this particular text or other similar texts, where there is an indifference toward the momentary life. Human flourishing, we've seen again and again. Human flourishing, health and well-being matter to God. With that thought of the momentary being significant, recognizing human flourishing and health and well-being does matter, I would press the conversation through this text just a little bit further. I would suggest that ultimately, current conversations don't go far enough on the spectrum of dealing with individual hardships and human suffering. Again, think of it on a spectrum. Focusing on the immediate relief of hardships, people's brokenness, injustices. We, the church often fail to bring the solution all the way to its intended purpose and goal. That is, we often emphasize means as if they were ends. Again, it's not that momentary health and flourishing don't matter. That we should look past the human condition and plight and hardship and look only unto the eternal What I'm suggesting is, as we assess human hardship and momentary affliction, we see it on a spectrum all the way through its ultimate goal, to its ultimate end of resolution. To say it more plainly, we must see, as the church, individually, as believers, we must see the whole picture of man's need. We need to see momentary affliction, momentary hardship in rightful balance to its ultimate point of resolution. And that ultimate point of resolution is the Lord Jesus Christ as he is freely offered to each in the gospel. This is the ultimate point of resolution. If we address human hardship in a vacuum, outside of recognizing the greater ultimate need, the greater and ultimate resolution, we simply bring mercy in a moment that is not eternally relevant 
And yet we confess, indeed, the individual who dies in time does live on eternally forever. To do less than address human need and human plight in light of the gospel as the terminal end is to confuse immediate relief that we can bring to someone or other forms of upward mobility that we can achieve for others with eternal salvation. We simply confuse the momentary with the eternal. Or even worse, in our present discourse, most often, we not only confuse the two, oftentimes, with immediate physical relief, with the eternal salvation, but even more than that, we often neglect the eternal aspect altogether. One writer emphasizes this particular text this morning in light of what I'm introducing this way. Please key in on this quotation. Quote, The story of the lepers reflects that a healing miracle is not the same thing as salvation itself. The miracle is in itself ambiguous. And it is not properly experienced. And key in on that point, properly experienced. Unless it leads to a change of inner orientation. Now let me read that one more time without interrupting. As we move into the text this morning. The story of the lepers reflects a healing miracle is not the same thing as salvation itself. The miracle is in itself ambiguous, and it is not properly experienced unless it leads to an inner orientational change. Through this morning's text... We are almost, or perhaps I am simply prompting you to ask this question. Think of this a bit introspectively for yourself this morning, sitting under the text as it is preached. What does it mean to be made well? Think of current hardship. Think of your current context in life. Think of the current burdens that you're bearing, emotionally, mentally, relationally, financially, geographically, whatever the burdens are that are weighing in on your mind and heart. Objects of hardship that you're thinking, I would love to have removed. I would love to have resolution on. I would love to be made well. Let me press upon you this thought from the text and asking it. The reason why I'm asking it is because you see the last statement in the text of verse 19. Look at verse 19. The comment at the very end of the text He said to them, rise and go your way, your faith. And then I want you to key in on this, has made you well. Now, for sake of losing the rest of my entire sermon, the way that it's completely laid out, I'm just giving you the conclusion already, right? All 10 of them were made well. Not really. One of them was made well. Well, I thought 10 were healed from leprosy. 
right they were. But what does it mean to be truly made well? Let's jump into the text then, beginning verse 11 and 12. Verse 11, as has been read for you, I'll jump in, just do 11 and 12, and we'll stop for our first observation of the text. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers. We're still working out the new microphone. Sorry for the popping. Verse 12, and as he entered a village... He was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Now, the first observation to be made of the ten lepers in the scene, that's setting up the scene for the probing question of what does it mean to be made well. Think of the ten lepers here more generally as an example or an illustration of sinners in general. So we're looking at the lepers on, on one plane, and we're looking at them on another plane. Generally speaking, consider them a picture of sinners in general. How so? Well, consider that the men here on the outskirts of the town are men of deep infirmity, right? They're living under a very practically imposed um, sentence of death. We noticed this earlier, and we'll turn there in just a moment in chapter 5. But you recall, a priest examines these individuals for physical signs of health. If they are deemed leprous, then they're considered to be physically contagious, So the individuals are sentenced under a practical outliving of uh, a banishment from the society, a banishment from the community, a banishment from their family, and they live in this sense of on the outskirts or in a certainly designated space because they're considered contagious. So at this point, you have a group of 10 men who are otherwise deeply infirmed in the context. They are under the weight of being leprous. Now, we could move into the text and see our Lord is bringing resolution to this leprous event. He is healing people, and that's the point of the story. He is healing the lepers. Wasn't it prophesied? This is what he would do when he comes on the scene in his ministry. He's going to heal the lepers. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to heal the lame. That's what this is about. He's healing them. But there's some interesting pieces here where we find, actually, that's not the emphasis of the text at all this time. Let me show you how, in contrast, this text with Luke 5, where we've already dealt with Luke 5 on the individual who was leprous there. And then we'll see an event where one is leprous, event this morning where there are 10 who are leprous, our Lord interacting with those two leprous moments quite differently. Look over in Luke 5, just for one moment. Flip over to Luke 5 and see how these events are rather different because they're written and constructed in such a manner as to us to draw different conclusions. Notice the emphasis in Luke 5. I'll read verse 12 and 13, and I'm sure you recall as we dealt with this before. Verse 12 of Luke 5. While he was in one of those cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, again, we emphasize this point. The man is where the other ten should be. He should be on the outskirts of the town. He is not allowed where he is now approaching. However, he heard that the Lord was there, and he came into that area. So he entered the city. Again, an act of faith on the man's part, eagerly seeking the Lord. Verse 12, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, 
if you will, you can make me clean. You remember that beautiful picture here in this text of you know you can if you want to. That, that, that beautiful picture of compassion, it's not simply that he reaches out and can. It's that he reaches out because he wants to. He wants to heal your infirmities. Verse 13, the man has no doubt he's able, but the question is, do you desire? Verse 13, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. That is key to the contrast of the text we're looking at this morning. Verse 13, he stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying that that beautiful phrase, I will be clean. If you want to, you can. You're right, and I do want to be healed. Now, keep that picture in mind. The critical detail Luke is recording there for your soul's sake in the picture of the compassion of Jesus is he reaches out and he touched the infirmed that he might show compassion and healing power. It's not just simply, I'm able, watch. I want to be healed. Now, with that beautiful picture of intimacy and touching power, notice what we have back in our text with the ten lepers here this morning to show you the emphasis of the miracle. Verse 11, once again, take the whole picture in as we're back in our text now of 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Do you see the detail of the text? We have two leprous events. One man who forges his way into the city and casts himself at Jesus' feet in order to be healed. And then the confessional statement, Lord, if you want to, you are able. Contrast that with what we have this morning. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Do you see, the surface point is obvious why the men would stand at a distance, right? We just explained it. They should stay at a distance. They've been deemed contagiously unclean. So they stand at a distance. You were reading that naturally thinking, yeah, they probably should stand at a distance. In fact, by law, they must remain at a distance. But the most important piece of the text that we must see in contrast to Luke 5 is that, indeed, they have no physical contact with Jesus. Why is this so significant? Notice the text once again, verse 13 and 14. They lifted up their voices. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. You see, they have no physical contact with the Lord. There they are. Hey, Jesus, have mercy on us. He looks over there. They shout to him, and he says to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Could it be any more different than what we experienced in Luke 5? 
Why are the two episodes so starkly different? Because they're serving to draw our attention to different angles, to ask different questions, to be drawn to different conclusions. What is the point that I'm trying to labor so intensely to get at? It's this. The lack of dramatic contact between Jesus and the lepers. The simple, hey, Jesus, go show yourselves to the priest. This distance. Where were they, Luke? They stood at a distance. The lack of dramatic contact works to downplay the actual miracle. In other words, this particular text isn't emphasizing that they were free from leprosy. That moment of healing and compassion is not the climax of the narrative story. Notice how it's even told. Look at look look just very carefully at the detail of the text. They stood at a distance, lifted up their voices. They shouted to him. He shouted back to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And then look at how the story concludes with telling it. And as they went, they were healed. They left. They were at a distance. He said a word. They turned and they left. As I mentioned to you in the introduction, the miracle itself is rather ambiguous and not the point of the story. Again, I was asking you at the very beginning, ask with your uh, probe, think on your, in your own heart, in your own mind, what does it mean to be made well? Because there's 10 men in this story who will give you a particular answer. The contrast of the text drawing out those two conclusions, those two affirming answers. What does it mean to be made well? So the healing of the lepers is not the climactic point of the text. Why not? Because there's a way to experience mercy. There's a way to experience deliverance without experiencing it properly. All ten men received mercy. All ten men were delivered from their physical symptoms. Notice the passage one more time. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go. Show yourselves to the priest. And as you would expect, as they went, they were cleansed. So all ten men at that moment received what they wanted from Jesus. You see that they got what they asked for. They got the physical healing they were interested in. They got the momentary deliverance. The burden was broken. But you see very carefully as the text will proceed in just a moment, that is all that nine of them got. 
And again, that's not to downplay or to say physical things don't matter. Human flourishing and health don't matter. We ought to neglect it and only address the eternal and overlook the plight and hardship that is real and physical and momentary. Because again, Christians are only concerned with the eternal. No. It's not that the physical healing didn't matter. Again, think just for a moment the joy that all ten men experienced when they went and were cleansed. The death sentence that they practically lived under was gone. That's not insignificant. Being able to be rejoined to family. I don't know, the text doesn't say how long were these men ostracized? How long were they quarantined away from society? How long? I don't know. It could have been several years. We just don't know. But think about the burden they bore. Not only were they able in that moment, as they went and were cleansed, were they able to be restored to family? They were able to have access to the temple. That is the political and the religious life of the community. This idea of community being involved with the life of their family and neighbors. These are not insignificant. And we ought not look simply past them. They're all significant features of individual flourishing, and that is why our Lord restores them unto these graces. Does it matter that you alleviate a momentary affliction in someone else's plight? Or does it only matter if they're converted in that moment? No, it does matter. And it is significant. And mercy that is shared that way is genuine, real, and honoring to the Lord. But is that its terminal end? And we can't get out of asking that question. We can't. We've seen it again and again in Luke. It's on a spectrum. It's not an either-or exchange. Either you meet a momentary need and lift a burden in affliction, or you evangelize, or you consider the spiritual dynamic alone. It's not an either-or. It has to be seen on a spectrum where this is real, genuine, and meaningful. Burdens are being lifted. Health and nourishment is accompanying. But it must be on a spectrum toward a terminal point. And that momentary burden being lifted is not the terminal point. If we said it was, we would miss the tragedy of this particular text. The tragedy of the text is that nine men received a momentary burden being removed. And as far as the text indicates, that's the only burden they felt they needed removed. They got in that moment all that they wanted from Jesus. So they kind of fade to black in the text. It was meaningful, but they fade to black. Notice now, then, in our last couple of moments together, what the climactic feature of the 
miracle actually is. Notice verse 15 and 16. So we have all ten cleansed. Verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back. To do what? Why is he leaving the crowd? What about going and seeing his family? What about joining back into the community? What about showing everyone his leprosy is gone? No, he turned back to praise God. Praising God with a loud voice, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. You see, this man recognized by the sign of physical healing, he needed the thing signified. Momentary healing, momentary cleansing, momentary burden breaking speaks to a greater healing to come, addresses a greater human need. It's on that spectrum. Being healed, that burden being broken, he turned by means of that healing to go back to its source. He knew by that sign he needed a holistic healing. I'm healed on my body. I'm healed from terminal disease. I'm healed from being ostracized and embarrassed. I'm healed from falling apart. And that healing, that sign of healing spoke to the things signified. I need holistic healing. He needed to be healed, and he knew it, both body and soul, by the love of God in Jesus Christ. Notice the passage again in our last few moments. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice because of the healing. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Another thing to develop perhaps for another day, this aspect of Luke's gospel we've seen, those who are considered outside of the kingdom are those indeed who are embracing the kingdom. Luke notes for us, this is how the other men, if they were Jewish, should have responded. The Samaritan got it. Verse 17, then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Do you see the tragedy of the text? Where are they? They got what they wanted. And that was enough. Was, verse 18, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, so, so you can see the, the foreigner, the, the, the man healed, the one who turned in an act of faith. He's still on the ground in front of our Lord. And our Lord, verse 19, said to him, Rise, get up, and go your way. Your faith has made you 
well. Faith in what has made this man well? See? I, I was uh, um, reading articles this week at one point, and a, a, a woman got a, a tip. Maybe you saw it. It was in regular mass media. A woman got a tip at a restaurant. Perhaps you saw it. It was, a, I, I don't know, it was something like a $1,500 tip on a $20 bill. Um, and there was a note scratched on the back that the woman received on, her, uh, on, on the check. And reading, reading her remarks, it, it was, it was uh, an attempt, the, the remarks on the check were an attempt to, to uh, encourage this young woman that God is watching her. And that she ought recall by means of this check that God cares for her. God is watching her. And her response, when you go through the interview, the response to the check then when she says it, um, her response was about, I didn't realize that there were good people. Um, it, it establishes, reestablishes my faith in people. Which is right in, in one sense, encouraging, right? Um, and empowering and, and, and helpful and, and a movement in this woman's life. But you see, faith must rest upon its true object. That, that, that faith doesn't rest in an event. Faith's home or terminal point isn't no more leprosy. Faith's terminal point isn't in a large tip and thereby the people who gave it to you. Faith can't rest there terminally. There is one sole object of faith. There is one saving object and terminal end of faith. And that's in this text. Faith has made you well. Faith in what? Faith in the fact you're healed? Faith in the fact there's good people. Faith in the fact that life can turn around. Faith has made you well. Faith in what? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the terminal end. He's faith's surest and truest object. Your faith in me has made you well. No, no. We're all, all ten of us are, are well. No, where are the other nine? True, they're well in one sense. And I don't mean to downplay it. It's a meaningful sense. But it isn't terminal. Ten men experienced mercy. Ten men experienced healing, and only one of them experienced true healing, eternal healing, salvation by God's grace through Christ alone. Only one. Faith cannot rest on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, let me reemphasize to you in conclusion. He is offered to you freely 
in the gospel, whereby you can lay hold of him as he is offered to you through faith, not by works, not by acts of good deeds, not by acts that are genuine, kind, and merciful to another, but through faith that then wellsprings into a life of good deed, healing, mercy, and encouragement. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for seeing the need to address momentary affliction truly and genuinely as it does matter, but that we take